Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Investing with IBD sponsored by MarketSmith. Today is Tuesday, July 28th, 2020. I'm your host, Arusha Pierce, and today we have Katie Stockton. Katie is the founder and managing partner of Fair Lead Strategies. Thanks for being here, Katie. Of course, good to be with you. On today's podcast, we are going to talk about the current markets. We will talk about market sentiment, and then we will end the episode with a few current ideas. So let's get right into the current market. Uh, we have three distribution days on the NASDAQ, four on the S&P 500. The, the, the market's kind of just going a little bit sideways. We are in the middle of earnings season. Katie, what are your thoughts on this market? My thoughts are that if it's sideways during earnings season and not down, that's probably a good thing. It oh, means yeah. that expectations have been managed to a great degree, given the environment. Um, I really care more about the reactions to earnings in my seat as a technical analyst versus the earnings themselves. I let the experts do that on the fundamental side of things. But the earnings reactions so far have been mostly good. There's been a, a couple of high-profile breakdowns. Intel is probably the most obvious one. But overall, I, I feel like the reaction has been quite good. Um, the fact that the S&P 500 is consolidating or digesting its recent gains to me is healthy. Um, you know, July has positive seasonal influences, and we've certainly seen that come to fruition this month. And with what we've seen more recently, it allows short-term overbought conditions, which are really a byproduct of that seasonality, to be absorbed. And, and if they're absorbed via sideways sort of choppy price action versus a significant pullback, that tends to be better than the alternative. Now, you mentioned that uh, so July generally has positive uh, tendencies. Yeah, that's right. So if you just look back over history, and I don't have the numbers to be precise, July is one of the best months of the year. And wow. that's in recent past and um, even over the past 50 years, I believe. So it is compelling. Um, who knows really why that matters? Uh, but we do tend to see volatility pick up. It used to be September, October, but now it seems like it really manifests itself in August. Perhaps that's because there's a little bit of a lack of data hitting the tape once earnings season comes to an end and folks have you know, sort of gotten fully invested or, or they feel that way at least. And it yeah. leads to some kind of retracement as, as people go off on vacation. Yeah, it, it's uh, the, the reason why that kind of stuck out is because, and this is for just from my experience, I always feel like July is like my worst month. And it's always kind of around this time, like the last week of July, where, and I guess it might maybe it just have to do with earnings season, but uh, I always seem to have trouble and, and a number of my stocks is gapped down. There have been a few nasty years for Julys, especially in the very back end of the month. So that's not um, totally surprising, but they're really standouts. Um, on average, it still remains one of the best months. And, and it seems to be, you know, closing off relatively strongly. Yeah. In fact, if we do see a little upside from where we saw the market close today, we have the potential to see a long-term momentum buy signal for the S&P 500. We follow something called the monthly MACD indicator. Okay. MACD stands for Moving Average Convergence Divergence. And that's a very common technical tool. It follows trends and it, it smooths out all the noise. It went negative, or I would say more accurately, really neutral 
in March from a long-term perspective, and it has a potential as early as this Friday to go positive again. Wow. It's a very much a, a lagging indication of what we already know in terms of the intermediate term turnaround, but it does affirm what we've already seen and suggest that it can continue. So whether we see it this month or maybe in August or September, um, it's really, I guess, irrespective of the fact that intermediate term momentum is already positive and doesn't really show signs of tiring in my work. Yeah, and, and so now, uh, now this has been absolutely, uh, and I'm sure for you too, you've been doing this for 20 years or over 20 years. Uh, this, this year is unprecedented with, we, we've had a, a, a vicious bear market and then this unbelievable bull market all all and we're only uh, seven months uh through this year you know i don't really adhere to those definitions of yeah. bear markets and bull markets um, with percentage thresholds mm -hmm. i think bear market really has to have more than just price declines it has to have duration yeah. so i feel like the last real bear market was you know in in 2008 uh, I don't think we're in store for anything similar to that based on what I see in my indicators at this time. The breadth profile of the market, meaning market participation, is much, much better than it was then. And naturally, the V bottom that we saw on back of what I consider to be a correction, not a bear market, into okay. the March low uh, was quite impressive and just uh, shows some resiliency uh, regardless of what it's driven by. No, and and I, you do bring up a good point. In the end, you don't want to put labels on any of this. You want to really just pay attention to the behavior and the price action in, in the end, right? Yeah, it's all about honoring the price action, and it helps keep us honest, I think. When you watch the trends that are in force and you defer to the momentum indicators, which often give you really a black or white answer about the marketplace, they can tell you, are we on a buy signal on a short, intermediate, or long-term time frame? You can't argue against those signals. You can decide to position against them, um, but that's at times sort of a, against your better judgment. So it, it's a great way to eliminate some of the gray area and some of the biases that come into to force just from a market psychology perspective by using some of these sort of binary tools. Now, Katie, how, walk us through how you got into this and how you ended up starting your own company at Fairly uh, Strategies. Uh, so how, how do you get in technical analysis? Because uh, it, it is kind of an unusual path, especially starting off. That's right. I, when I started off in, in college, I had no idea what technical analysis was. And, um, you know, naturally that, that was something that um, sort of surprised me and, and all of my friends in college as yeah. to what my career choice was because, you know, they hadn't heard of it either. Um, but really in college, I was set on the path very early on. I went to a small university, but it was one of 12 in the country at the time that had coursework in technical analysis offered. It was on the graduate level, but I audited that course. And at the same time, I picked up an internship with a great firm called Dorsey Wright and Associates. They do point and figure charting, which is one yep. discipline within technical analysis. So I was with them for a couple of years. And if any of you know Tom Dorsey, he's an inspiration and, and certainly was that for me. So they helped place me in San Francisco um, with a, a big fund where I did technical analysis and did hand charting with the point and figures. And, and that That's was my incredible. first job out of school. And I really tried to stay on that path of 
doing technical analysis in some capacity throughout my career. Most recently, I would say before starting Fairlead Strategies, I spent the bulk of my career on Wall Street working for broker-dealers. I had a stint at BTIG most recently, which is a Manhattan-based firm. And a couple of years ago, I decided to go at it on my own, seeing an opportunity in the marketplace to expand my reach from just the institutional clients I'd always spoken to, to a broader audience, including individuals and registered investment advisors, but also to yeah, create the product that I had always envisioned. And now, so you've been doing this for 20 years, right? And uh, back then, 20, 20 years ago, how, how was Wall Street accepting technical analysis versus now? I would say it really wasn't. Um, yes. so I've seen it um, gain acceptance to such a huge degree over what, what I would consider to be a pretty short period. And I credit that to the uh, Chartered Market Technicians Association. So that's yep. the CMT Association, uh, some, somewhat similar to the CFA Society. And it's an organization that helped me uh, learn more about technical analysis, understand the discipline to a greater degree, knowing that there's more out there than what I came into my career knowing. And also they credential folks uh, to receive something called that CMT designation. And that's something that furthered my career as well. So I really credit them to, you know, sort of spreading the good word about technical analysis. And it's naturally a, a great, um, I, get, I guess, topic um, that can be understood very easily when people think of the markets in terms of behavioral finance or, or sort of market psychology as opposed to something that's simply reflective of good or bad companies um, to acknowledge that price sometimes deviates um, from what would be expected from a fundamental perspective or a macro perspective. The technicals can really help fill in the gaps when that happens. Yeah, and, and so so maybe the markets aren't as efficient as, as uh, we learned in school. <laughs> I would agree with that, yes. Um, fair, fair to say. Um, and we can, you know, all probably agree that history may not repeat, but it certainly rhymes. And yes. there is value in identifying trends. I don't think anybody would argue against the fact that price does move in trends, and that's not just stock prices. Uh, you name it, and you can really see it when you pull up these charts. So we're simply trying to identify those trends and also to understand when they may be ending or shifting and there can be real value in that so when we look at charts we're looking for things like support and resistance those are potential areas of buying and selling pressure based on a number of factors like previous peaks and troughs that type of thing mm -hmm. and that can add a lot of value um, you know in terms of understanding the risk reward profile of any given investment so at Fairlead Strategies, what are some of the, the ways that you like to look at the market from a technical view? I start top down. So I'm somewhat U.S. equity centric, but I do work on what I consider to be sort of macro technical. So I look at just about anything that influences U.S. equities. And of course, that includes a lot. But we start top down looking at the S&P 500 index in our reports that we publish daily. And we drill into some sector rotation work or relative strength work, which I find incredibly important because that Absolutely. will 
really set the tone as to whether you're outperforming or not. Because if you're in the right sector, we all know it's a large cap technology, it seems like all the time. If you're in the right sector, you can really, um, you know, get that upside leadership benefit to your portfolio. So we spend a lot of time with that. We provide long and short ideas based on our so-called bottom-up work. So even though we're top-down oriented, believing that the market really drives the move in a lot of stocks, the bottom-up work that really for us means looking at a lot of charts um, for individual stocks, those setups that we see from that perspective can really enhance or otherwise what we're seeing from a top-down perspective. So it's an invaluable exercise to go through the individual stocks and look for opportunities. So we do that as well. And you know, overall, we try to find inflection points. We try to identify important levels. We always make sure to have a feel for the dollar, gold, crude oil, treasury yields, things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really do deep dives into various sector work because I think, again, that's where the real potential is to outperform. And, you know, it's always good to have not just a, a bias on the sector, but ways to take advantage of different themes that are trickling down into that sector from a top-down perspective. And any particular time frames that you like to focus on on more than, than another? How long are your time frames? Well, in my work, I do tend to emphasize the inter intermediate term. So let's call that weeks to months. Um, okay. The short term, of course, is something I address on a daily basis because how can we not right. with all of this volatility that we've become accustomed to? The, the days to weeks time frame is something I address as well. But charts are very valuable over the long term time frames, and we always have that broader framework within um, sort of our, our, or within context, because that will help us understand which um, gauges on an intermediate or short-term basis to emphasize. As an example, if a security is in a long-term uptrend and then you have an intermediate-term momentum buy signal, you're more likely to take advantage of that as versus um, if it was in a downtrend, knowing that you'd be taking a counter-trend position, which is a little bit higher risk. No, that's perfect. So the market continues to be in an uptrend. And uh, remember, we are in earnings season. So just make sure you know when your stocks are reporting over the next few weeks. Let's take a quick break. But when we return, we are going to talk about market sentiment. We'll be back. I am here with Scott St. Clair. Scott's one of our senior product coaches at MarketSmith. Now, Scott, there are a ton of publicly traded stocks just on the U.S. I think it's over 5,000 stocks. Who has the time to go through all these stocks and find the very best ones? Yeah, most people don't, right? So what you need is a tool like MarketSmith. We have decades of research on what makes a great winning stock. So we've done all the research for you. So we're going to try to highlight those specific stocks with those great data points. So if you're looking for that next great potential big winner, orange stock ideas button, you just click on it and you've got some of the main reports that we use, including the Growth 250. Yeah, and the Growth 250 is the first list that I go through on the weekends. Yeah, it's the most popular one, but there are others. There's the Breaking Out Today, Stocks Near a Pivot, and then the Blue Dot List, right, which is very popular. It's going to show you the stocks with the best relative strength. So we've done a lot of the work for you. What you have to do is review these lists. You're going to come up with some of the best ideas in that current market environment. Perfect. Mark Smith saves you time and makes investment research that much easier. For more information, go to Investors.com 
slash podcast 2020. Katie Stockton is our guest on Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Okay, Katie, let's get into market sentiment and uh, let's let's walk through how you look at it. And it's it's amazing. Now, maybe for our crowd, we're a little bit more used to it. But for a lot of people out there, you know, a lot uh, you sent the fundamentals. And you mentioned this in the in the previous segment. The fundamentals they don't always tell the story, at least in the shorter term. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, it's really about market sentiment right now, especially when folks are just looking for answers. They're trying to understand the macro influences. I, I wouldn't say that they're ignoring the fundamentals right now, but but they're you know sort of looking at them with a grain of salt, knowing that anything can happen. So it, it's, it's very helpful, I'd say, to have a good read on market sentiment and. Believe it or not, since we've risen from that March low for, for the major indices in the U.S., sentiment has not gotten overly bullish. Um, that would be a natural sort of byproduct of such a strong up move. Yeah, and I mean, we just, we're all like, what, 50, more than 50% off the lows, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're getting up to the point where it's it feels like we're getting close to a full retracement of the downdraft with the next yeah. resistance at that February high for the S&P 500. So it's somewhat surprising that sentiment hasn't gotten too greedy, um, but I think it's just a sign of the times and probably for good reason. But what that creates is an underlying bid to the marketplace. So when, when you do see the pullbacks on a short-term basis or you get the consolidation phases, especially in the market leadership, Folks tend to see that as opportunity, um, you know, feeling like there's not that frothiness in the marketplace that sometimes characterizes more parabolic up moves. So I'm looking at consolidation phases and pullbacks as healthy ways to prevent the uptrend from getting ahead of itself and, and sort of influencing sentiment in that way. There are a lot of ways to measure market sentiment. Um, you know, originally when I got into the business, I looked at things like the investor polls. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that, you know, I decided I'd rather think about what people are doing versus what people are saying and uh, they're thinking. So I kind of migrated from those investor polls to more transactional gauges of market sentiment. There's something called the fear and greed index that is very popular that we use quite a bit. And also uh, things like the CBOE volatility index, which is inversely correlated to the S&P 500. We'll use those as sentiment gauges and they can really be informational and uh, sort of give you a heads up on when things are getting potentially overdone. So, so with the VIX, the the last one that you you uh, mentioned, now that that one is almost inverse. Where if it's starting to drop, people are just becoming a little bit more complacent, right? They're mm-hmm. they're just getting a little bit more used to things working uh, so well. So, h- how long do you or or how do you incorporate that into uh, the strategy? Because sometimes it, it can be complacent for for longer than you think. That's right. So we're trying to understand the VIX using various indicators to try to identify inflection points. So there's no magic number on the VIX that's meaningful in our opinion. It doesn't really 
trade in the same way as a stock would where there's support and resistance and long-term trends. It's almost a bit more like an EKG chart when you look at it. So uh, we try to understand when there might be inflections by using a combination of momentum gauges and also overbought oversold measures that can help us identify those inflections. And that's when we get information from it. Most recently, the VIX just took out its 200-day moving average. So while it's, it's certainly far below where it was, you know, back in March and, and beyond. Um, you know, it's not at the level where I feel like it's got a bottom um, underway. So I think that there's a little bit more room with the breach of the 200-day moving average okay. to the downside. And we'll just be watching those combination of indicators for some indication of an, an inflection point, which, of course, would then lead us to be a bit more skeptical about the S&P 500. And what about retail participation, just normal investors getting in? This has been one of those years, and it's been quite a while where you've seen so much retail participation. And obviously, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of uh, a lot of people staying at home, starting to do more day trading. Uh, I mean, from that kind of view, it kind of reminds me of 99 when everyone wanted to be a, a day trader. Uh, do you ever look at that kind of retail versus institutional participation? You know, I, I don't look at it as it uh, as I guess a market timing device, mm -hmm. but I think it's great. Quite frankly, I, I think it's a great uh, way for young people to get in the markets and and to learn from the volatility. Sometimes I think they may find themselves learning the hard way. But, yes, absolutely. But but there is opportunity in the market, and it helps. I guess, you know, sort of feed that curiosity. So in that regard, I think it's a great thing. And if anything, it just fosters additional momentum. There's so many tools out there like ETFs that we can use for investing nowadays that are really a great opportunity to gain exposure to various markets and sectors with a bit more inherent diversification. Those ETFs, of course, have also contributed to additional momentum at times, depending on the security that you're watching. So those are definitely factors to keep in mind. The way I manage through that is by just trying to watch support and resistance levels, knowing that they may be breached, but breached briefly as opposed to, you know, a meaningful breakdown or breakout. So we, we try to use sort of price and time filters to, I guess, mitigate the risk of those false breakouts and breakdowns. Yeah, and, and that's a huge point, especially for people who are starting out. Because when I remember when I started out and learned about support and resistance, you, know, you, you, you think that once it breaks that resistance or it breaks the support, that that trend is really going to accelerate to the downside. But a lot of times it's just testing and then it may have a shakeout or something like that and catch everyone who's a little too eager. Talk, talk about that because that's uh, – uh, that that's something that took me years to to really learn, especially yeah. the shakeout part. Well, I, I think the right way to think about any of these levels that are in play is that they're cushions rather than precise points. And that's simply because there's a lot of market participants out there. So to think that they're all thinking about the same precise level is unrealistic unless you're talking about perhaps the 200-day moving average. Yep. But even that I've found uh, really see sort of a flurry of activity around that level because it is so widely followed. And, you know, think of it as a cushion. There's another model called the cloud model or okay. Ichimoku. And okay. uh, that's yep. a great way to, to visualize support and resistance as more of a band uh, than a precise level. So there's ways to manage through that, ways that are a bit more forgiving, I would 
would say, and help us avoid those kind of shakeouts, which are pretty prevalent in this marketplace, I would say. Now, uh, earlier in the episode, you, you talked about a concept that uh, this is something else that really took me years to really understand how powerful it is, a relative strength. Uh, walk us through why this concept is, is so important and really can help distinguish between really great stocks and then just pretty good stocks. Well, ideally, relative strength is driven by long-term fundamentals of a company. So ideally, you're looking at stocks that are in long-term uptrends and they're in, in those uptrends for a good reason fundamentally. Sometimes mm -hmm. that's not the case, but relative strength will help you identify at least strong stocks um, and also, of course, weak stocks. And that's a great way to outperform benchmarks if that's your goal. So I, I think to apply relative strength, which is very simply a, a price to price ratio and identify it from a trend following perspective can add a lot of value. And um, we think most about technology as, as a leading sector, especially evident on large caps. So the major indices are very heavily weighted towards the so-called FANG plus M, so that's Facebook, <laughs> Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft now included. Yeah. And, and those stocks have been exhibiting long-term leadership. So folks that have been exposed to those stocks to a great degree have generally outperformed the broader market by having that exposure. Um, if only it was always that simple, that would be great. It's, it's not, of course. But really, those stocks have exhibited persistent leadership, and I don't see any major signs of reversals in that trend. Um, yep. it, you know, some folks will perceive that as a negative, but I don't think narrow leadership is necessarily a negative as long as there's good breath underneath the market. So narrow leadership can be okay as long as there's broad uh, participation. And so now let's talk about also leadership and also uh, sector work. How do you look at these uh, two different aspects uh, to, to really gauge uh, what, what places to, where, where really to invest in? So I, I give sort of um, underweight, equal weight, overweight weightings um, in my reports to address each of the, the economic sectors. And the trends are distinct, so it's not really just limited to the technology sector, but you can see very distinct intermediate term trends and take advantage of them. Uh, you know, look at the utility sector over the past few months, it's really underperformed dramatically. That was information from that relative strength ratio and, and would have uh, you know, helped you stay away from that and emphasize sectors that have exhibited leadership. An example of that would be consumer discretionary, helped by Amazon, of course. Those sectors um, you know, that have pulled back are mostly defensive in nature, and that can give you another sense about the strength of the market, more broadly speaking. So that sector rotation can also give you a picture of whether there's offense versus defense. And we can even apply it to sort of factors. Um, value versus growth is probably one of the most commonly watched one. And growth has outperformed over the long term, not accidentally related to those FANG plus M stocks. And yet we can market time the pullbacks in that ratio and understand when there might be a value rotation underway, which can be um, good added value too. Perfect. So once everyone is leaning and thinking one way, usually the markets have a tendency to do the opposite. So that's why it's important to pay attention to market sentiment. And of course, price tells all. Coming up next, we will discuss a few ideas. Stay tuned.
MarketSmith will give you a huge edge in the stock market. Better stocks, bigger profits. MarketSmith is the top research platform for IBD. It's just the best tool for individual stock selection. Everything within MarketSmith is designed to bring those best stocks to the surface. It does a lot of the work for you of filtering down to the potential leaders. It's when you take the training wheels off and you're ready to invest on a more professional level. MarketSmith will help you take control of your investment life. If you want to get serious about investing, start your membership today. We are back with Katie Stockton on Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Okay, Katie, let's get into a few ideas here. And and the first one, maybe some people have heard about. Let's start off with Amazon, and let's get your thoughts on that. Uh, You know, long-term uptrend, and that uptrend has positive, intermediate, and long-term momentum. And as we addressed in the earlier segment, the relative strength really is behind Amazon and more broadly consumer discretionary sector. Whether or not that makes a whole lot of sense fundamentally, I I can't be sure. Uh, But when something is working, it makes sense to stay with it. And there's a lot of folks concerned about the recent weakness or pullback. Uh, consolidation phase, if you will, in Amazon and many of its peers. But I see that as something that that interrupts a trend in a healthy manner that allows it from or prevents it from getting too steep and allows for a better entry for folks that felt previously like they were having to chase it. Um, So I I think I'd stay with that stock and use the consolidation phases to add exposure and to try to ride that, that relative strength trend. Now, so Amazon essentially took, it was almost like two years off or a year and a half off, and it was trading around like 2000 and consolidating uh, that whole time. And then it finally got out. It's, it's in this nice uptrend now. With the consolidation phases, how, how long, how long uh, a time period do you consider for a consolidation phase? For consolidation, what I'm referring to is just really recently over the past okay. couple of weeks. So, so I was addressing short term, but okay. certainly the trading range breakout that you're mentioning was major, and that yeah. that's something that's real. It's something that is typically actionable. I think if anything, a breakout is something that folks should feel comfortable buying into as much as it's almost against our um, you know, desire. We don't want to chase those stocks. We feel like we're chasing them and that can be frustrating. But those breakouts, by their nature, release the chart or the stock of resistance. So it's, it means that that resistance level has been cleared and there's probably a good reason for that. So that indeed is what we saw in Amazon and that follow through, that instant follow through that you saw uh, was a, a long-term positive. Yeah, and, and going back to that kind of concept of the breakout, all of a sudden you have all these new buyers who are just willing to pay higher prices than ever before. Uh, so if it can hold there and, and not have one of these kind of fake outs, uh, that, that is a significant movement, which, you, which really uh, helps a technical analysis uh, and really makes it, it can be a very profitable endeavor. That's right. So, you know, people are bidding up the stock and also probably bidding up the goods that are sold on Amazon right now. Yes. Um, you know, two trends to take advantage of, right? Exactly. Let's go to the second stock, and this is Apple. And Apple is continues to be amazing and continues to be in a long uptrend, but it, it, it took a time off uh, during the pandemic uh, correction. Uh, but now it, it's, it's kind of resumed that steady uptrend that it was in uh, before. That corrective phase in Apple 
while it was disconcerting because so many people were really heavily exposed to the stock, they really believe in that company. Mm -hmm. um, it really shook folks. Um, but indeed, of course, we're kind of right back to where we started with it in terms of momentum. There are some signs of short-term exhaustion in Apple that suggest we may want to wait a bit, um, but I still want to emphasize it as a long-term idea because it is a, a an outperformer, just like Amazon. It is an upside leader that's established itself very well, and it does have a recent breakout. So some kind of pullback or consolidation here, in addition to what we've seen, I, I would see as an opportunity to add exposure to the stock. And at the same time, you know, you don't want every position in your portfolio to, to have that same shape or feel to it. You still want to have some positions that are more of the turnaround nature, but you certainly want the core long positions to have that nice long-term uptrend, ideally with the recent breakout and ideally near um, new highs. Yeah, and, and that does bring up a good point uh, about correlation. Uh, and especially like 20 plus years ago, when, when a lot of us were learning this stuff, you, you wanted to be in assets that weren't correlated. But it almost seems like with ETFs and uh, a lot of these other instruments that have come out since then, things have just become that much more correlated. And so how, how do you approach that? Is it you're looking for some that just might be starting to come bottom up? And, and start a build, maybe come out of that consolidation and then have some that are clearly in uptrends. Is that how you balance those things? The, the correlations really waver. When, when the market goes down, the correlations go up. So yes, it's a yes. downtrending market affects correlations. And that's only natural because the panic or the, the cycle, uh, I guess, psychological sort of um, nature of those declines affects not just the market leaders, but just about every position in your portfolio. So yeah. you penalize the winners and also penalize the losers when the market's going down. It's in an uptrending market that you tend to see correlations to uh, sort of come in a little bit. And also during earnings season, we, we've seen the correlations decrease as well. So that that's natural. And I think um, overall, what we've seen this year, though, um, is that it does lend itself to active management. I think folks were almost sort of throwing up their hands and saying, you know, it's all about passive management. But I, mm -hmm. I think this year has reminded us of the value of having advisors, um, you know, to help you manage risk. So I, I think that that's been an important takeaway and, um, you know, it can help with these downdrafts that the market may not just be prone to, you know, um, in, in the near future necessarily, but, you know, down the road to have um, a, a system in place to manage that. No, and, and you, you, that's another really interesting point that you bring up with the passive versus active management. Uh, this year definitely is more of a stock picker's environment, uh, but it, it has been a pretty amazing at how well passive investments uh, or, or just the passive strategy has done for a number of years which I guess has forced a lot of active managers to kind of leave the game too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, I think there's been a shakeout for sure. And you, you see it certainly in Wall Street and uh, it's hard to watch, um, but, yeah. but the market's really rewarding good performance as, as it always has done. And folks aren't putting up with high fees anymore. So yeah. it's a shakeout, but it's a shakeout for a reason. Yep. And, and yet I do think that we'll see folks reflect on this year and, and 
it's an inevitable volatility between here and, and year end and say, well, gosh, you know, I would have been better off not just buying and holding the spiders, something like that. That's true. Let's go to another stock here. And this is the M uh, in, in the, the large phrase, Microsoft. Software uh, stocks have really been a source of long-term outperformance, uh, but when they pull back, uh, you know, it's really pretty meaningful in relative terms. And, and we're in the midst of what we um, would consider to be one of these relative pullbacks in the software sector, driven in part by Microsoft, and we see these as opportunities. So that relative strength pullback after a good phase of upside leadership uh, we see as a, a great way to take advantage of the long-term trends there. Microsoft is, is certainly the heavyweight in the space and one good way to express it and a way to get exposure to where there's momentum and relative strength from a long-term perspective. So not to sound like a broken record, but again, we want stocks like Microsoft that are near their highs, have recent breakouts and solid long-term uptrends in absolute and relative terms. Uh, now within even the software sector, you have stocks that are, are more of like a value nature. And I think there's some value in finding those names. And they look a bit different as you can imagine on their charts. Some are range bound, some are even in long-term downtrends. But sometimes within that framework, you can find ways to take advantage of those setups from a short to intermediate term perspective. As an example, we're starting to see a lot of triangle formations in stocks that would be considered value stocks. So when you see breakouts and triangle formations, they can be very high probability and give you sort of a nice tradable move to the upside. So that's what we're watching in sort of the value arena. I think it's something that's more short term in nature and you have to be nimble um, in that regard. But I, I do think that it's a nice way to supplement a portfolio, especially when the leadership is digesting its gains. So, so when you say with a, a triangle formation, it, it's you're, you're kind of getting the the lower highs, and uh, it, it's slowly just it, it's shaking out those last week holders in in these value stocks, and now they're they're starting to emerge out, out of those patterns. And not all of them are, quite frankly. Okay. Some some have taken out the bottom boundary of those triangles. But okay. after the strong run up off the March low, a lot of them entered consolidation phases. I would argue they had an opportunity to go down much more than they did. Yep. And the end result was sort of a narrowing range, which becomes that triangle. And yep. to the extent that we see more and more breakout to the upside, and usually these levels that they need to clear are very close by that's when we tend to see some upside follow through. So that's one of the setups that I'm looking for right now. Very interesting. So uh, there are a few ideas worth considering adding to your watch list. Thanks, Katie, for joining us today. Of course. Next week, we will have Dan Fitzpatrick returning to the show. Dan is the founder of StockMarketMentor.com, and he always has some great insight on the market. So that's it for this week on Investing with IBD. I'm Arusha Paris, and thanks for listening. And for this week's notes and charts, make sure to go to investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. 
This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.